Welcome to the Giveology Impact Series podcast. Giveology is a 100% volunteer-run online giving marketplace for education, which connects donors to grassroots projects and student scholarships around the world. Each episode, we share the stories, advice, and inspirations of social entrepreneurs and changemakers around the world in education. I am Amy Fan, your host for today. Today, we have invited Ian Guest. He is the executive director of the Advocacy Project, a nonprofit that seeks to help community-based human rights advocacy groups by sending fellows to the affected area. Welcome, Ian. Well, thank you, Amy. Nice to talk to you. Nice talking to you too. So, how did the Advocacy Project get started? Well, it got started back in 1998 when uh, I was asked to put together a team to go down to Rome mm-hmm. and help the uh, campaign for an international criminal court. They were uh, governments were meeting in Rome to, to draft a statute for an international criminal court, and uh, I put together a team and we went down and produced an online a newsletter on the conference, and of course that conference led to the drafting of a quite a strong statute, um, and then we continued our work uh, after that as the advocacy project, and we've been going strong ever since. So how big is it now? Oh, it's tiny, um, and we want to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, if we raise money, we want all of the money or as much as possible to go to our partners in the field, and we have a very small staff and a small office in Washington, but we have a an extensive network. We have about 40 to 50 people who volunteer with us every year, uh, including interns, quilters, peace fellows. We have quite a large uh, network of partners uh, around the world. So we're a very small organization, um, low on budget, low on overhead, but I hope big on impact. So how do you choose the organizations you partner with? They choose us. Really? We do not want to go in and sort of impose an agenda which we think is a mistake that's made by too many aid agencies. Um, we put it out on our website, what we do and how we can help, and we wait for people to contact us, which they do. We get large numbers of people who find us online or hear about us through uh, their own donors. Um, and then we will send uh, a volunteer, a graduate students, uh, we call them peace fellows, who will go out and, and, and work with the partner organization for several weeks, and if we both feel that it's a good fit, then we can build a long-term program together. Mm-hmm. So going back to something you said earlier, I heard that you mentioned quilters as part of the people on your team. Can you talk a bit more about that? Well, let me just first of all explain our model of support for these community-based partners, because that's quite important to get that clear. Um, we, we want to help uh, groups that find it very difficult to attract support and get their message out um, and, in fact, face a lot of pressure. Um, so we, we call them marginalized communities as a sort of general uh, term. Um, but they include people like the travelers in, in my own country, the United Kingdom, uh, gypsies, Roma, waste pickers in India, um, the river gypsies in Bangladesh, the Dalits uh, in Nepal, um, women who've been uh, attacked and, and sexually violated in, in Africa. So these are communities of people who have suffered from poverty, discrimination, um, and have huge needs, but those needs are not being met. And we feel that their first need is to get their message out. If people don't know what they're doing, they're not going to attract donors, they're not going to have any traction. So that's really what we do. When we send our volunteers out, um, the first thing they do is to help 
their host organization to put out the message. Um, and, and that's the sort of core. Once we've built that uh, foundation and, and both partner organization and, and ourselves, um, you know, we have some content, we can describe the work we're doing, then we can work together to build uh, a longer term program. Now the quilters come into it because um, not very many years ago, 2007, um, we realized that many of the, of the women in these different communities around the world um, like to use sewing. And so we suggested to our friends in Bosnia, where we worked with a group of widows, people who lost their husbands in a massacre, um, we suggested that they might use their weaving skills uh, to commemorate um, their loved ones who were killed uh, in this massacre at a place called Srebrenica, um, and then use the, the woven product, the quilt, if you like, as a way to tell their story and get their message out. They did it brilliantly. And um, uh, in fact, um, uh, those quilts in Bosnia were shown this summer on the 20th anniversary of the massacre. Um, uh, Bill Clinton, of all people, um, was there and was standing in front of an array of, of, an array of the quilts. So quilts can be a very powerful way to tell the story. Um, and we have gone from Bosnia to, to other partners around the world and suggested this. And all of them have jumped at the opportunity. And we now have an amazing collection of quilts. Many of those quilts are, are put together here in the United States. Um, the women in the global south, in Bosnia and Nepal, wherever it might be, will produce the embroidered panels and then we will bring them to the States and they will be assembled into quilts by quilting guilds here in America. So, you know, typically we have uh, between 10 and 15 quilters a year who will be helping us to put quilts together. But the, the core idea, Amy, is that it's important for community-based advocates to tell their story. And sometimes that story can be told through social media, Skype, profiles, photographs. But sometimes it takes a different way to get the message out. And we have found that embroidery and weaving is one such way. Mm-hmm. Since this is an audio recording, would it be possible for you kind of to describe one of the quilts that have been made, kind of just sure. visually? Well, we've, as I said, we have a, now have a, an amazing collection of quilts, um, which we regularly show at exhibitions. Um, and we have, for example, one from Uganda that was made by people with this disability in the north of Uganda, which we'll be talking about presumably in a moment. Um, I think that the, um, the first quilts uh, from Bosnia um, was quite simple. It just carried the names of people who had been killed in this massacre. Um, uh, it was powerful. It was, it was, it was simple, but it was powerful. Um, we then took that idea to Guatemala and then to the Congo, um, where we supported, uh, for five years, we supported a program, um, that ran two centers where women who had been raped in the conflict could come and recover. And they would stay in the center for three months, and then we would help them to return home. During the time that they were in those centers, um, they uh, we rented land where they could cultivate, um, and we also trained them to sew. And they produced some absolutely amazing embroidered squares. Uh, and those squares 
it was very interesting. We didn't say to them, "This is what you should, uh, this is what you should produce. This is the design. These are the themes." We said to them, "Look, you tell your story," and then we taught them how to use the needle and thread, or the people in the census did, and we bought them a couple of sewing machines. So we 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 laid it all on, but we didn't say to them, "You have to do this, and this is what you should produce." Now, half of those women in the Congo um, produced images which were quite gentle, you know, women and children um, drawing water, tilling the fields, making food. The other half uh, produced um, uh, images which were extremely violent um, and told the story of what happened to them as individuals um, in a very, very graphic manner. Uh, and, you know, so explicit that I would hesitate to even describe it to you here in this interview. Um, when we show those quilts at exhibitions, we cover them up when there are children uh, around. Um, and, you know, they show women being pinned down on the ground. They show men with their trousers around their ankles. It, it is, it's quite extraordinary how, how, uh, how severe those images are. But of course, they are an expression what those women went through. Nobody's listening to them. They have no lawyers. They have no police to protect them. They're completely vulnerable, and so when they have an opportunity to tell a story, they tell it whatever way they can. And these women told it very graphically. Um, and we have shown those quilts all over the world, and they have a tremendous impact. Um, and of course, we use them as educational tools as well to explain the problem of conflict and the impact on women in countries like the Congo. That's powerful. Now, transitioning to another topic, you mentioned earlier the woman in Uganda, and Uvology currently has a project featured on its front page from the Advocacy Project that's partnering with the Gulu Disabled Persons Union about providing toilets um, to area that area. And so can you talk a bit about that? Well, I can indeed. And this is an issue that is of, of great interest to us, and, and, and um, I think... Um, will be of great interest to your followers and your supporters of geology. Um, so this project is taking place in northern Uganda, which of course was an area that was very, very badly hit uh, by the rebellion um, known as the Lord's Resistance Army, a very fanatical um, group of, of, uh, of rebels who created enormous problems up there, and, and it led to an extremely vicious and long uh, conflict, um, which created a huge problem of disability in many, many thousands of people, um, directly through arms, landmines, but also indirectly because many people were forced into uh, centers to, to, to deprive um, the, the rebels of support in the local population. So there's a huge problem of disability, but we have found with our partner, the Gulu Disabled Persons Union, which is a, a very effective um, group of advocates um, for uh, persons with disability um, that um, there are no uh, accessible uh, government um, toilets, or, or rather there are no accessible toilets in government facilities. Um, that was that was what we that was what we found in you know, 2011, we had a very good volunteer, Peace Fellow, who went out and worked uh, with this organization 
And she was astonished. I mean, she could not find um, accessible toilets for people with disability. Um, and um, so in 2012 and 13, um, we, we built uh, an accessible toilet with some donations at the Gulu Bus Park, which is the biggest sort of uh, bus park in, in that region, um, which was very very successful, a bit, bit too sophisticated maybe, but um, successful. And then in 2013, um, we decided that this was something, we decided to, 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 uh, to survey schools. Um, and what we found was, we did a survey of 10 primary schools, 10 of the largest primary schools around Gula. And, and what we found was that um, several NGOs had installed accessible toilets, but many of them were lacking important details, unlike handrails and ramps. Um, and so were useless. And also that many of them had been vandalized by the local community. So we decided to launch a pilot project in a school called Kochi, which we did last this past summer. Um, we raised um, uh, three to four thousand um, dollars, and we were able to install um, a very uh, strong and sturdy toilet together with uh, water tanks. Um, now we we laid the groundwork for this quite carefully. Um, I've visited myself. Um, along with our Peace Fellow uh, in the summer of 2014, last year. Um, and it was very interesting because um, I found that um, it wasn't just a problem of not having a functioning toilet. Uh, there was actually a, a lot of bullying that was going on in the school against children with disabilities. Um, and I, I met, um, you know, one young man called Ivan who had a limp from polio, uh, and he told me that um, uh, other students in the school um, were trying to force him out of the school, and what they would do is they would smear feces all over the bars of the of the single um, toilet that was that, that he could use. So they were actually trying to force him out of the school. And the teachers told me the reason was that his grades were good. They were jealous of it. So it was clear that there was more, it's more than just the facilities. There was an attitude um, of, of prejudice and, and, a, and a kind of climate of bullying that was going on against the children with disabilities. And of course, kids like Ivan, um, if they can't go to the bathroom, um, there's not much point in them being in school. It's a huge disincentive for these children to attend school, and the headmistress of that school was very concerned that Ivan would drop out and that other children um, with disabilities would also drop out. So we raised this money. Uh, actually, one of our Peace Fellows did some crowdfunding and, and put together um, uh, some funding. We threw in a bit more, and we were able to put together a package, and the package was the toilet, the hand-washing, but also um, a program of education in the school um, to reduce the level of bullying. bullying. And uh, Amy, it was tremendously successful. Um, in August of this year, there was an opening ceremony. The head politician from the district came with over a thousand visitors. Um, children uh, in the school um, put on a play, and some of, one of them actually acted the part of Ivan, you know, their, their own colleague. Um, and uh, uh, we were able to give an award to seven children who had 
performed really well academically, and I'm very pleased to say that one of them was Ivan. So he got a little bursary, a little scholarship, um, along with the six other children. Um, and the, the, so the whole thing was, I think, very successful. Um, now, sustaining that will be very difficult because uh, the water tank has to be um, has to be refilled. The toilet and the tank have to be protected from vandals. Um, the children have to keep up the momentum. They have to buy toilet paper and soap, etc., etc., etc. So sustaining that is going to be difficult, um, but it seems to be working quite well. And now we want to go to more schools. We want to take that model to other schools. Uh, and we are very much hoping that Givology can help us um, uh, by tapping into the generosity of, of, your, uh, of your network. Parallel to that, Amy, we're going to be talking to our partner, our local uh, Ugandan partner, uh, the GDPU, is going to be lobbying and talking to the local government, the district government. Um, because we want the government um, to uh, integrate accessible toilets into their ed long-term education plan. And our target for this program is that every primary school in that district will have at least one accessible toilet, preferably more, um, within a period of time. We don't know how long yet, but uh, advocating for the government is, is and getting the government on our side is the best way um, to scale this idea up and to make sure that all children, like Ivan, uh, can benefit from this very basic uh, facility. So it's an exciting program, um, and it has a direct impact on education. You know, we didn't know this when we got into it, but if, if you don't have a toilet, as I say, kids with disability can't attend school. So their right to education is, they're being denied their right to education. And enrollment is falling as a result. Wow. Never think about toilets as a solution to education, but with the way you described it, definitely sounds like it's something important. Um, so the fellow that you sent over to Uganda, um, how did he get involved first? Well, it, this, it, let me, let me shout out. Um, give a shout out to our fellowship program because we started this in 2003. I teach, I'm an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and in 2003 um, I said to my class, uh, you know, we have these partners around the world um, and if any of you would like to go and spend an interesting summer with them, you know, we'll, we'll make that possible. Um, and some of them did uh, and um, it grew into this, I think, very successful and well-established fellowship program. In the years since uh, 2003, we have deployed 274 graduate students to over 45 countries, and they have made a tremendous impact. Um, they go out for 10 weeks, uh, short term. We also send people out for a period of, of, of uh, six months to a year. Um, and during that 10 weeks, we set them very clear targets. Um, I, I think that fellowships and internships, um, that uh, short-term internships are quite difficult. 
Um, and the reason is that it's extremely difficult to produce a long-term impact in a short period of time. Uh, ten weeks is not very long. So we ask our fellows when they go out um, to help their, their host organization design a program, put it together. Um, they can do a bit of crowdfunding for it if they want. We certainly encourage that. Uh, and in addition to that, we ask them to produce um, content, photographs, maybe video, um, blogs on the work that they're doing. Um, and they can give some IT support and some IT training to their host organization. And they can also help to uh, produce an advocacy quilt um, embroidered squares, as we were talking about earlier. So there's a package there. Um, and what we found is that... Um, that package can then be very useful to the host organization after the fellow goes. Now, the fellow in Uganda, uh, Josh Levy, is from New York. Um, he is quite a character, um, very smart, and has worked at the United Nations uh, since graduating. All, all, of our, all of our fellows are graduates, Amy, because we put them in positions of uh, responsibility, and they go to areas where... They really do need to know how to operate. Um, these are very difficult fellowships. These, these are not conventional internships or fellowships. They're really quite challenging. Uh, anyway, Josh is a, is a very determined, uh, intelligent and driven young man. And um, he went out. Um, he'd never been to Uganda before. Um, he put up a crowdfunding page. He raised about $4,000. Um, and uh, together with the money that we put in, we were able to fund this very imaginative package. Um, and he also helped the GDPU, his host organization, to lay the foundation um, for a sustainable project. Now, the fact he was only there for 10 weeks is obviously a real limitation. Um, it means that there's a lot of pressure on us and the, the Ugandan partners um, communications are very difficult, as, as, as you can imagine, um, and uh, we are going to have our work cut out um, to sustain that project. So part of, I think, the fellow's um, role is to create demand and motivation in the local partner organization. Um, it's not that we go in to Uganda and say to the GDPU, you should do this. Um, we go in and say, look, your mission is to improve access to people with disability and to, uh, to build or to, to lobby for accessible services. Um, here's an idea that could really fit very nicely into this. And if they say yes, we'll help them make it happen. And if they say no, not a problem. It's their decision. Partners lead these uh, projects. They take the decisions, they run it, and, and we help we help them to develop tools to make that possible. And all of that is done through our peace funds, who typically are you know, aged around 25, 26, 27, 28. Young professionals who've had professional experience, many of them have worked in the peace form, uh, people like Josh, and we're enormously proud of them. Um, they've gone on to do some uh, amazing work in, in, their, in their professional careers. Yeah, that sounds great. And it's a theme that keeps coming up over and over in education, that you have to have the support of the local community in order to truly get anything done. And now just, um, I know you mentioned a lot of 
kind of anecdotal evidence stories of how people in schools have been like have um, how their education has improved. But what other metrics do you use to measure impact? Well, that's a great question, um, and it's always coming up, and um, it's it's quite difficult um, because our job is capacity building, really, and strengthening the capacity of local organisations, community-based organisations. I mean, that's really what our mission is. Um, our mission is to go in and help organisations like the GDPU in Uganda or this group of widows in, in Bosnia um, to take on um, larger programs and campaigns and then to produce some change, some real solid change. And of course, that's a complicated task. I mean, these organizations are under tremendous pressure. They don't have enough money. Um, they're led by individuals who are inspired and, and you know, have gone through enormous um, sort of pressure and subjected to enormous pressure, gone through persecution. Um, they're not necessarily great managers, Amy. Um, and, you know, basic stuff um, that is meat and potatoes for any non-profit in this country keeping receipts, recording your receipts, reporting to your donors, that's quite difficult for these organizations. And so, um, you know, our job is to help them acquire the skills and the capacity to manage programs, to work with donors, to report to donors. Um, in other words, to, to evolve and get stronger as organizations. Very difficult to measure that. Um, and the way we do it is to set uh, very clear goals for um, the programs that we support. Uh, so, for example, the toilet project um, in uh, Tochi in, in northern Uganda and the one that we are uh, promoting through Givology, we have set extremely specific goals for those projects. Um, and, and, and the outputs uh, and the outcomes that we, we expect from each of the activities that we'll undertake. Um, and parallel to that, we have a, a reporting process where the local partner will report to us and we will then report to the donor. Now, I will say, uh, Amy, that, that this, I think, this whole question of monitoring results and impacts and reporting um, is 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 quite complicated, and we in the non-profit world are going to have to do um, a lot of head-scratching over this. Um, because if we look at the world today, there are more and more areas which are going to be off-limits, where we can't work for obvious security reasons. Um, and I think also that uh, larger institutional donors, um, the big foundations, and maybe governments as well, are going to focus um, their support and their money uh, on larger organizations um, in areas which um, where, where you can truly do detailed monitoring. And that is going to limit their involvement. I, I have no data to, to prove this, but that's just my suspicion. We also work, for example, in Mali. Um, and as we know, there was an attack in Mali two days ago. Um, we have a very extensive program in Mali, um, including a, 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 the north of Mali. Um, and traditional monitoring and evaluation is very, very difficult in that country at the moment. 
So we're going to have to rethink this, and I think the more that we rely upon individual donors, um, in, in individual people, and the less we rely on the larger institutional donors, um, the harder it's going to be uh, for us to do this kind of monitoring. Institutional donors impose extremely rigorous M&E requirements, um, and individual donors do not. You know, they, they will be attracted by an emotional appeal. Um, uh, I'm not saying they don't want to know how their money is spent. They do. But the kind of detailed, rigorous reporting um, that we've come to expect and, and that is required of us from uh, large foundations and governments um, is, I think, um, I'm not sure if we're going to get that from individuals. So what I'm saying is, and I think this is extremely important, and it's actually prompted by a recent trip that I did to Mali. I was in Mali about a month ago. Um, I think we're going to have to work very hard with our friends like Givology to develop new um, forms of monitoring and evaluation and to set uh, clear guidelines and, and, and goals. Um, and um, I think this is actually quite exciting because as more and more individuals get into the business of philanthropy, um, you know, we need to, we need to adjust and we need to adapt. Um, I think the ground is shifting. I think the world out there is a more complicated place. Um, I think many of the assumptions that we've had up to now, um, probably we need to re rethink them. So I don't have any kind of clear conclusion for you. And this is a very long reply to your question. Um, but I do think that um, we need to step up to the plate and we need to uh, really rethink the way that we set goals and that we measure them, particularly um, if we're going to uh, depend more and more on private donations as opposed to institutional uh, grants, which have a very rigorous and well-established um, procedure for monitoring and evaluation. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the mission of Givology, too, that small donations and aggregated together can have a big impact. Just one last question. What what are the advocacy projects, plans for the future? Um, well, I think um, I would say that our plans are to do what we're doing um, and to do it uh, more effectively. And I think the key thing that we need to do is to sustain our programs and make sure that they can continue um, and to find uh, sustained funding and sustained support um, for them. Um, it, it's no, it, it doesn't really help to go in and do a one-off toilet in Uganda, to build a one-off accessible toilet. What we have to do is we have to change opinions in mind. Um, it, you know, it's it's not enough to go in and open a center in Mali for women who were raped in that war, which is what we've done with our Malian partner. What we have to do is we have to go in and we have to build the confidence of Malian women um, and help them to resist uh, the kind of cruelty and, and, and violence that was um, that was meted out to them in 2012 to build uh, a society and, and to build values in which education and 
um, protection of women and empowerment of women is part and parcel um, of 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 the is is seen by everybody as being essential to society, and that requires these small small um, uh, pilot projects, these interventions that we do, a toilet here, a centre there. They have to build something larger. They have to change attitudes. Um, and that's quite difficult to do when you're running on such a small budget, um, depending on volunteers, um, and you have a small office in Washington. Um, I'm very confident that we can do it, and, uh, you know, we're, we're always extremely pleased to work with partners, and I see, I see so much energy and, and sort of, um, interest and, and, uh, intelligence in the givology and community that we're really excited to be working with you guys. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this program in Uganda is pretty exciting. I mean, if you could start by putting in a, an accessible toilet in one school or two schools and change attitudes and bring the government around and start bringing larger investments, say, from the World Bank or, or, or aid donors, bring that into the picture, then you're really making a difference in, in society. You're improving the lives of, of hundreds of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands uh, of Ugandans. And disability is, is a very large problem, and um, you know we, we need to be imaginative and innovative about the ways that we get into it and we approach it. But we have to think long-term and we have to think sustainability. So that's what we will be bearing in mind as we go forward with this uh, with this Uganda project and indeed all of the other projects that we're supporting. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing. Well, you know, um, thank you for your support and interest. And and again, I'm I'm enormously impressed by Givology and and the the kind of volunteerism that you've been able to tap into. I think it's hugely impressive, um, and. Um, it's very much, I think, uh, in keeping with our own mission here at the Advocacy Project, which is, you know, you can empower a lot of people. You don't need to throw money at things to make a change. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really get people on your side. You can inspire them. You can motivate them. Um, but, but ultimately, Amy, I would say this, and I, and I think this is the key takeaway from all of the work that we've done through the years. The best advocates on these issues are the people who are directly affected. They have a real interest in making a change. And they don't have the option of opting out, saying, okay, well, I'm fed up with this disability issue, I'm going to go off to do a master's at some university. They're in there for life. And our job as advocates and supporters is to go in there and help them. Um, it's not to go in and impose an agenda on them, it's to go in and help them understand their needs and then address their needs. Um, and it will be making a contribution, um, for sure. It won't be all they need, they need a lot of things, but help them, encourage them, support them, help them to get their message out, help them to raise funds, but essentially help the people who are directly affected because they are the best advocates on this. Again, this is Ian Guest from the Advocacy Project. You're listening to the Givology Impact Series podcast. If you'd like to learn more, go to givology.org. That's the site also where Ian's project with the Advocacy Project on providing clean toilets in Uganda will be featured. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.